What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, David Dennis Jr., author of The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the Legacy of a Freedom Ride. There was tremendous danger, but this was the first time that death had come so close to him. If he was in that car with him, he'd be dead. You know, if he had gone with Mega Evers that night, he who knows what would have happened. There were so many times where he could have and should have died, right? From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Today's guest is David J. Dennis Jr., son of legendary civil rights activist and organizer David J. Dennis Sr., Together, they've collaborated on a new book called The Movement Made Us, looking not only at the life of David Dennis Sr., chronicling everything from his first freedom ride to his first meeting with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to the birth of Freedom Summer, but also the mental, emotional, and spiritual impact of those times on Dennis Sr. and his family. David Dennis Jr. is a freelance writer, educator, editor, social commentator, and visiting professor of journalism at Morehouse College. David Dennis Sr. is a civil rights veteran and one of the original freedom writers, writing from Montgomery to Jackson in 1961, served as field secretary for the Congress of Racial Equity, or CORE, and helped organize Freedom Summer in 1964, and so much more. David Dennis Jr., thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um... I'm going to get right into it. A two-part question for you about your father. The first one, uh, in addition to the very brief and not nearly adequate enough description of his work, um, who was your father to the movement, particularly the civil rights movement? Um, And the second part of that question is, who was your father to you? Ooh, okay. Um, Right, I said we're going to get right into it. You right out the gate with it, okay. (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so dad, you know, I I feel like is one of the integral architects of a lot of the most pivotal moments in the civil rights movement. I think, you know, his role as field secretary in Mississippi was, he was, you know, a central figure in in strategizing the 1964 Freedom Summer, um, organizing voter registration, and you know, I think he's one of the many, many cogs in a, in a very important machine that was, you know, working to get us free in the 60s. You know, I think his eulogy for James Cheney in 1964 is one of the, you know, more impactful speeches you'll hear from the movement and change the course of the movement, change the course of the, of the country. So uh, that's that's him. And, and as my dad, you know, as an part of his work in the movement, he was he was my hero. And as my dad, he's somebody who, you know, we had to, you know, I love dearly. Uh, we I loved, you know, we started this book and now we're on the other side of this book. We're in a in a such an incredible, great place that I sort of didn't know that we could even be in because we had to write this book and talk to each other and have the conversations that a lot of people don't have with each other. A lot of dads and sons don't have and, you know, we're, we're in, a, in a great place. We, you know, our relationship has been complicated at times, but I think, you know, we're in, in this this place of peace that is just, um, you know, I, I had always dreamed of us having. Talk about the collaboration process. Like, how were the stories cold? Like, did he, did, did he verbally tell them to you and then you crafted them and then he helped edit? Like, what, what was that? What was that like? And if you could say more about some of the hard conversations, whatever it is you're willing to share, um, that came up during the process. 
I had sort of a framework of a book based on the stories that I'd heard as a child, you know, um, like I'd sat around the dinner table, my dad and his peers, um, the Hollis Watkins and Bob Moses and Uvester Simpson and um, Dory Ladner and all those folks would just sit around and tell these really episodic stories. And so I sort of knew going into it um, a bunch of the stories that, that we were going to tell. So I kind of sat him down for about a week <laughs> every day for, you know, hours on end and just asked him as many details about these stories as possible. One, to get them down on paper Two, you know, in case something happens, you know, dad was late seventies when we started this process, he's now 81. So it was like, let's get all of this stuff down now. And then, um, I would go after he told we got that part. I went and did research and filled in a bunch of blanks and trying to get the chronology together, things like that. And there were places, obviously, I had to recreate these stories. For those who don't know, the book was written in my dad's voice, first person, as if I am him. And I had to write as if I were there at these places. And I would, you know, if there were blanks about, you know, what was the color of the, the house or something like that, or exactly what happened, I would just try to write what kind of felt like a true thing that happened and I would give it to him and he'd correct it. Sometimes, you know, our memory works and that when you see something that's wrong, <laughs> it like reminds you of what's right, you know? So that helped. And we just went back and forth where I, where he would, I would write and he would tell me what he remembered and go back and put that in. He'd sometimes remember something new. Uh, I'd put that in and we just went back and forth until, you know, we got as close to, the the truth of what he remembers as as humanly possible um you know and it was it was a, it was a difficult process there were a lot of things that he blocked out for a very long time things that he totally forgot had happened or that he remembered one way and i you know found something that you know helped jog his memory about about how it actually went my dad's memory from the people i talked to even some historians had said that his memory is really really accurate but there were just still some blanks and some pieces that just just would not come to him. So having to dig that out from him and ask him to revisit very painful memories was difficult. You know, it was difficult for me to see my dad go through that. It was difficult for him because he wanted to do this for me. But there were just some blocks there that were that were hard. Um, what was also difficult is that there are letters here that I wrote to dad about our relationship, about growing up with him and how the movement work impacted us and impacted him. And it's honest. It's the honest truth about our relationship. And it was something that I hadn't really expressed to him in that detail before. And we had to, you know, he had to read it. Obviously, I let him read it before it went in the book. And we had to have conversations about it. And that was, you know, not the easiest thing to do. But, I, but you know, again, we came out better on the other side of it. Yeah, that was the the for me, unexpected gift, really, uh, of this book as a, a full-time, full-blown activist myself, watching the impact on my daughter, who's now a teenager and now has the words mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to, to talk about that impact was just really, really moving. And, and I, I wonder, as you talk to children of other activists, how common of a threat is this, that, that the parents didn't take care of themselves? or weren't able to take care of themselves and were experiencing PTSD and all of the other things and the ways in which that impacted their parenting and then thus the, the mental health, emotional health of their children. Well, you know, actually one of the things that I'd heard uh, so much from 
other, uh, I guess, movement babies is how few of them have actually had these conversations with their parents, you know, um, and how many of them didn't know a lot of stuff about what their parents did. And I would tell them sometimes, you know, you know, your mom and your dad did this thing. My dad told me a story. They wouldn't know. And and to be honest, before I, I if we hadn't done this book, there'd been so many so much stuff about my dad's life that I did not know myself, you know, um, because you sometimes you just don't know what questions to ask, you know, because you don't know what happened. You don't know what was there. And so it's a hard conversation to have. And, and you know, it's there are things that are just locked away for all these folks. So the most common thing that I'd heard was, you know, no, I didn't know this about my dad. We just haven't had the conversation. Maybe we should have that conversation. That was sort of, you know, a, a big part of it. And yeah, a lot of the stuff I did here was that, you know, my parents still struggle with this. My parents still struggle with that. That PTSD is very real. And it had folks sort of re, you know, reassessing why they have the kind of type of relationship they have with their parents or rethinking why things have to be a certain way or why the things have been a certain way. So I think, I, I hope that it's created some sort of level of healing for a lot of folks. But uh, yeah, this just, it mostly is just the fact that these conversations just are not happening as, as much as other folks may think they are. To, to, to that point, David Dennis, for, for, you know, based on, on what I read in the book for, for a long time, um, your father wouldn't talk about the work or downplay his role in the movement. I think he even said that a um, couple of interviews, he intentionally said things inaccurately. Mm. What was the journey like for him to get from, I'm not talking about this, to collaborating with you to write this extensive chronicle of his journey? Well, I think he he sort of came back to that. So from 68, when he sort of left CORE all the way uh, up until the early 90s, he, like you said, just did not talk about the movement stuff at all. Didn't do interviews, did a couple for friends here or there. But for the most part, people asked him, he just sort of said whatever. <laughs> he didn't really think about trying to relive those memories. He's kind of agreed with things and went with things. And some of these interviews would contradict each other and things like that. But the early 90s, he uh, reunited with Bob Moses, who... Um, you know, was starting this algebra project and they hadn't seen each other in almost 30 years. And they got back together and dad moved, you know, we moved back to, we moved to Mississippi. My dad moved back to Mississippi. And this was really his reintroduction to the state where so much of this stuff happened, but also into movement work and also to these memories. So my child, you know, this was my childhood. And so my childhood was spent with him sort of coming back to these moments and living them and talking about them. So by the time we were ready to do this book, I'd, I'd had heard a lot of these stories and heard these things, but it was still um, difficult to get him to do the whole book. I think one of the ways that one of the reasons he was able to do it is because we wanted to make sure that we highlighted the unsung heroes. And for him, this was a way to focus on the people whose names you're not going to hear in history books, the C.O. Chins, um, the Anne Devines, Victoria Gray, Amzie Moore, you know, Turnbow, those type of people. I think that was one of the ways to get him to do this. Like if you, you know, have people pick up this book thinking they're going to hear your story, they will, but they're also going to hear the names of people who saved your life, who were integral in your life, who their story is not going to get told in a lot of other places. So I think that was one of the ways that we were able to get him to, to fully invest in this but, you know, it was a journey. I mean, it was a journey. There were times where he would sort of blank out on me and, and would, you know, sort of fall off. 
but I think, you know, he, he loves his son and wants me to be, <laughs> to be successful and finish his book. So he really took this on as something that he felt like he needed to do. I'm in conversation with David J. Dennis Jr., who in collaboration with his father, David Dennis Sr., have released The Movement Made Us a Father, a Son, and the Legacy of a Freedom Ride. David, I want to get into actually some of the stories uh, about your father's work. And um, why why don't we start with the fact that he actually didn't set out to join the movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was trying to go to college and get his degree uh, and and keep it pushing. Uh, Talk about how he got involved. So, so yeah, so dad went to uh, Dillard University and wanted to be an engineer. That was his thing. He was the first person in my family to uh, graduate high school. Went to Dillard uh, with no intention of doing any movement work. He does not set out to uh, go do sit-ins or get arrested. He just wanted to go go to school, finish. And so as fate would happen, he was walking across campus and saw um, this attractive woman uh doing you know talking to folks about going to these core meetings and so my dad again still had no intention of going to core meetings but he had every intention of taking this woman out on a date and tried to take her out on a date and the only close proximity to a date would be to go to these uh go to these core meetings and that woman was doris castle and she is part of you know one of the most prominent central figures, especially in New Orleans core, her and her sister were at the castle were, I mean, they were strategizers, they were organizers. And uh, as Doris did with dad, like central recruiters in, in the movement in, in New Orleans. And so that's how we ended up going to these meetings. He, he wanted to take her on a date and she said, come to the meeting and that he just started getting more and more involved, started helping, you know, make signs, started helping train and, you know, next thing you know, he's he's full full fledged in the movement work and never got to go on a date with Doris Castle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit more about about some of those early days. Um, let, let, let's talk about when he finally gets uh, he finally agrees to to go to an action. There's supposed to be mm-hmm. a nor- arrest uh, order in place, and yet he he lands uh, in jail. Yeah, so there was sort of an uh, uh, an agreement, you know, an unofficial agreement with the city of New Orleans and New Orleans Corps was that you could have a certain amount of people protesting on a certain street, you know, very specific where nobody get arrested, right? So that my dad figured this is my chance. I'll go in, <laughs> I'll uh, do this do this uh, protest in front of the store, uh, and you know, I'll impress Doris, <laughs> and then uh, I won't get arrested. It's a win win. Like what you know, what what could go wrong? And so it just so happens that, you know, uh, at the time, some of the middle class black folks were like sneaking into the back of these stores to steal, uh, you know, patronize them and and spend their money there. And so Aretha pointed dad to go around back. And what dad didn't realize was that this was the no fly zone. You couldn't go back there. That's where you get arrested. So he went back there. He ends up getting arrested uh, for, for doing that. But he's also not only arrested for, you know, the trespassing in the protest, but he's also arrested for uh, disturbing, uh, uh, resisting arrest because he was so adamant <laughs> that if you just let him go, he'll never, you'll, they'll never see him again. <laughs> you know, like, he was like, this is not, you know, like, this is not what I'm here for. I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to get arrested. I do not just leave me alone. Let me go finish my classes. Right. And uh, that was his first time in jail. And, and that really sort of changed him. I mean, he, uh, 
uh, him and Jerome Smith. Jerome Smith had been uh, doing this for a little bit of time. So Jerome Smith was sort of, you know, vocal about doing, um, you know, hunger strikes and really sort of indoctrinating him to some of this movement work and talking to folks in jail and seeing sort of the biggest importance of this work. And then also seeing how these police and stuff just discard you and toss you in jail for doing nothing really sort of sparked a lot of this passion for him. I want to go next um, to how he landed on the train. Right, yes. (laughs) Barreling towards um, boarding a bus for uh, his first Freedom Ride. Uh, This is, of course, following the first Freedom Ride Mm -hmm. uh, where the bus was um, firebombed uh, Mm -hmm. and and, and Black folks fleeing that bus were met by white folks with Mm -hmm. sticks and pipes and um, bats. I'm sure most of the folks that listen to my show know that story. And and so folks in, in Louisiana are, are, are now uh, planning to go. Talk about how your daddy ended up on that train. Yeah. So he so I, before I tell the story, I want to, you know, like one of the reasons, one of the things that's important to me about this book is that folks see these people in the movement as real people. That's right. You know, yes. as that, you know, we're telling these stories of dads want to go on a date, dad want to be this movie. Because I think there's an idea that like, kids were just born and like you come out of the womb thinking I want to, right. I want to go, you know, get arrested and fight for voting rights. Like no people have goals and desires and things they want to do, right? Like dad want to be an engineer. Right. And just the, the things that happen in this country, you know, force you or make you, you know, have that decision about what do you want to do with your life? Right. And, and also another thing that I want folks to understand that these were kids, children, That's right. right. That at this time, the stuff that we're talking about, dad is 20 years old right and you know all these other folks are early 20s and bob moses was the elder statesman he was like 26 right and so i say all that to say that dad dad's recollection of getting on the train to go to Mont- to montgomery is that they got him drunk <laughs> <And> so <laughs> they got him too drunk to sort of realize you know what was going on and he's he's on the train but this, it's funny how memory works, right? Is that when I talk to Jerome about it, Jerome does not remember getting dad drunk. Jerome, yeah. Jerome remembers them drinking. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. he remembers dad, you know, being adamant about joining the folks and going going on this free to ride. So, you know, that, that story, I mean, all these early stories are important because they are just showing that these were just kids also trying to hang out and go on dates and party and do things like that in the midst of these, you know, terrible, terrible times. And I think, that's something that we should all be able to relate to is that we're trying to, you know, just hang out and go enjoy ourselves. But white supremacy is going to rear its ugly head at all times. And we have to sort of make these choices about what we're going to do and what we're up against. But you shouldn't feel as though, you know, you're doing something wrong or it's not right to be a kid trying to enjoy yourself in the midst of all of this. Or, you know, tr- you, that, you know, you have to be something more than just a regular human being who is tr- who's just trying to do what's best for the people that you care about. And I think these sort of innocent, you know, fun, fun stories illuminate that, that these folks were, on, were doing remarkable things. But in the middle of that, they were just trying to be kids. Right. I mean, two, two things in response to that. Uh, a, um, so glad that, that you reinforced that point in our interview mm-hmm. about, you know, organizers and activists and folks that dedicate their lives right to liberation of our people are just human beings mm-hmm. um, as flawed <laughs> uh, right. as, as, you know, dysfunctional as, as human as, as anybody else. Um, and, and and actually, it's it's the folks, uh, you know, my my belief system. You can respond to this or not, but like folks that wake up 
and and say this is what I'm going to do and I I want to get arrested and I want to mm-hmm. be a martyr and I want right those folks are actually dangerous right 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 because mm-hmm. they're they're often doing the work for for absolutely not the right reasons right the right. goal is mm-hmm. to survive mm-hmm. while transforming things I think that's you know that's vastly important I mean you know one of the people who I identified with the most in the book is Mega Evers you know because yes. you know he's closer to my age he has he was married with children. I'm married with children. And like his mindset was, look, I'm doing this, but I have no intention to die doing this, you know? And I think the history sort of frames these people as folks who were wanting or willing to, or looking forward to death in some sort of way when that was not the case, like their lives were taken. They didn't like Martin Luther King, Mega Evers, Malcolm X, all these folks, they, they did not give their lives to anything. You know, right. their lives were taken because they had every intention of hanging out with their children. They had every intention of being able to do what my dad and I are doing is sitting around and telling these stories and, and bonding over the, this this movement work. You know, and I hope that folks see the beauty in what me and my dad are doing, but also understand what was taken away from a lot of these other folks. Yeah. I actually wanted to talk about Medgar Evers and yeah. um, the impact of his assassination on your father, their relationship. Yeah, that was the, I mean, that was devastating. That's still one of the most devastating moments of my, my father's life. My dad and, and um, Medgar Evers were, were dear friends. And my dad was with Medgar Evers right before he was um, assassinated. And this was, you know, for me, this took away a lot of the innocence that my dad had in in terms of movement work. You know, like there was, there was tremendous danger, right? But this was the first time that death had come so close to him. You know, like everybody knew that it was dangerous. Everybody got in trouble. They got beaten. They got put in jail, but they had sort of developed this dark humor about it. You know, the sense of adventure a little bit Mm -hmm. in, in this work. And that, you know, when you come back on the other side of it, you try to joke about it or, or, you know, get along. But this this person was murdered, you know, and my dad has still never gotten over uh, losing Mega Evers. I mean, and so many people were lost. I'm also really glad that you brought up. Right. There's so many names mm-hmm. that many of us will never know. Right. But mm-hmm. this was a movement of tens of you know, thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. That said, you talked about the the your father gave the eulogy of James Cheney. James mm-hmm. Cheney being one of the three core members, uh, civil rights workers that were killed in Mississippi uh, by the Klan uh, in 1964. Uh, he was killed along with Andrew Goodman and Michael Swarmer. Did I read correctly? Your father was supposed to be in that car. Yeah, so my dad was supposed to ride with them down to Neshoba County. Um, they had come down from Oxford, Ohio. Uh, well, first of all, when I talk about milit- like militarized attacks against movement workers, that's what this was. Like there was a, a church uh, burning an attack to essentially snuff uh, out Mickey Schwerner uh, specifically and bring him down to Mississippi and have him go to Neshoba County where they would ambush and kill him. You know, that's sort of been the um, the longstanding theory and belief about how, how that happened. So because uh, Neshoba County was... Uh, Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney's that was their their base right that they had transformed that area into something special and Mickey Schwerner was especially public enemy number one because 
he was white, but he was Jewish, right? So he was like, you know, a, a, a white ally, but he was also Jewish. He represented somebody that they hated, you know, tremendously. So they wanted to get rid of these guys. So um, Cheney and uh, Schwerner and, and Goodman, who was who was training out in, in Ohio, joined. He had joined them. So they came down to Mississippi. Uh, they met in Jackson. They met my dad in Jackson, who was going to ride down with them. But as you know, as it so happened, my dad had bronchitis. He was just under the weather. He was sort of getting worn down. And the guys, specifically Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney, were just like, just just hang around. You know, stay behind. Don't need you to ride with us. We got it. And they convinced dad to sort of stay behind. And, you know, next thing you know, they, they, they're, they disappeared. And my dad, you know, is, is alive to, uh, you know, he, because he wasn't on, in that car with him. And forgive me if I'm putting these words in your book, but but I I, I believe I remember you talking about your father living with survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's definitely had survivor's guilt because again, like he, if he was in that car with him, he'd be dead. You know, um, if he had gone with Mega Evers that night, he who knows what would have happened. Right. But there were so many times where he could have and should have died, right? And he is alive and all of his friends and so many of his friends are gone. And even not just from back then, but so many friends have died from, you know, things dating back to injuries sustained that they had in the sixties. Right. Mm. Or just old age, just like, you know, uh, Bob Moses passed in while we were working on this book and he was my dad's, you know, like my dad's brother, you know? And so my dad is outliving these people who, you know, as part of Survivor's Guild, as, as you may know, is that people you don't feel like you deserve to outlive anybody, right? And so he just is is still here, and he's ex, you know, you know, experiencing this stuff with me when he knows that there are so many people who cannot. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm in conversation with David Dennis Jr. about a book that he released in collaboration with his father, David Dennis senior, the movement made us a father, a son, and the legacy of a freedom ride. I want to shift gears a little bit uh, and, and go back to you because you are, you are very much in this book as well. Um, talk about how your father's experiences, the choices that he made um, as, an activa- as an activist, as an organizer, um, how, how did they impact the choices you did or did not make relative to your own movement activity and, and your family? Yeah, I was, I struggled with understanding where I would fit in movement work, especially around Ferguson, because I did not know, you know, my, my family did not make it, you know, didn't make it, you know, my, um, my parents divorced when I was young and we sort of, you know, there was splintering and things like that. And I traced it sort of back a lot to my dad's traveling and things like that and trying to figure out his new space and his new movement, things like that. So for me, I didn't quite understand how it was possible to, to do movement work and keep a family. I thought that you had to pick one. And so it was hard for me to think about, you know, how do I start this work and maintain my family and be a good dad, be a good husband, things like that. So it was it was difficult. It was hard for me to figure out where to go. Like if I was thought if I go to Ferguson, then maybe I'll go to Baton Rouge. Then I'll go to Minneapolis. Now, where do I start and where do I stop? And how do you uh, what do you sacrifice? Because for me, you know, if you're willing to sacrifice your life, I had thought that you must clearly also be willing to sacrifice your children, your family. 
And that was difficult for me to figure out because I was not going to lose my family. Uh, so I had to kind of figure out what what to do, you know. And for me, that includes, uh, you know, I, I'm not I'm not an organizer like that is. I'm a writer and I'm a chronicler and I can chronicle this work and figure out a way to do this while being the best husband and dad possible. But it was really a struggle for me to figure out and place myself in both of these worlds of dad and husband and somebody's part of this work. Uh, and that was one of the things that, that, you know, is a, is a carryover of, of me not understanding so much of my dad's work and my dad, you know, what he went through and, and what he went through later in life. You say, uh, in I believe it's letter number one uh, at the end, you say to your father, you punish yourself for what you did just as I punish myself for what I didn't do. Is that still true? I think my dad still has, again, some of that guilt, some of those regrets, some of those questions. As far as, as, far as me, I think, no, I don't question myself anymore because the conclusion that sort of came to with the book and everything is just do something, you know, right. if you just do something, you'll find your space. And I think one of the things that happens is we look at this work, we look at all this movement stuff and people think you have to be willing to die or willing to give everything to get us free. And I'm not necessarily a proponent of that. I just think that if you do something, you'll find your natural place, right? There are some things like That's I'm not right. willing to do, like I'm not willing to you know, I'm not trying to go out there and get tear gassed and, and get tossed in jail. That's not my place. You know, now, if that ha now, if I do end up finding myself in that space, in that place, then, that, then so be it, you know. Yeah. But I'm not, you know, that's I got I got my ministry. That's not my ministry. And so um, but but I know that I contribute, you know, in that's a certain right. way. You know, I, I think about. In the 60s, the, the teachers, like the middle class black folks who were often criticized for not being front facing and things like that. But they had families to take care of. They were their only source of income for a whole lot of people. And what they could do is they could donate money. They could do things in secret and they could find their own place in that movement work. Just like, you know, the the families who are out in the middle of nowhere, who if they're seen with you know driving a Bob Moses around, then their whole livelihood is gone. Their houses get burned down. Their children die. But what they could do is, in secret, you can come over and spend the night and I'll cook you some chicken. And they were integral to the movement, even though there were some things they were not, they could not bear doing. And I think if everybody just has that mindset, like let me just do something, you know, let me right. do this something. Maybe I'll do a second something. Maybe I'll do a third. But there will some everybody will find exactly where they need to go. And I, and I think that that's where I am with it. And I hope that, you know, other people are encouraged to just have that mindset that if you just focus on doing one thing just to start, then the other things I guarantee you will follow. I, I was laughing so hard because that's literally how I end every time I speak, right? And mm -hmm. and what I say is like you, you don't have to, you don't have to go out there like me and and get tear gassed and get beaten up and and go to jail because the movement needs everybody, right? Mm -hmm. We need communicators and cooks and childcare uh, folks and um, you know again this idea that that you have to die um, or sacrifice your whole being in order to to contribute and and that actually. Um, 
is reflected in, in your last sentence in the same same letter. Being beaten and jailed and killed isn't part of activist work. It's part of white supremacy reacting to activism. And these reactions are for white folks to hold, not us. We deserve mm-hmm. better. So beautiful. So like no, I, I literally I cried. Look, I'm gonna cry again <laughs> when I read that. Just so beautiful. The 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 whole book is lovely. One one final uh and, and not just lovely, that feels like not enough, but incredibly powerful. Uh, I think a, a wonderful gift, particularly right now at this movement moment. Um, so many important uh, lessons. Um, but well, thank you, last... thank you for that. Thank you so much. For oh, that. Yeah. no, thank you for this. And so I, and I just want to say also like the accessibility of language, mm. right? Um, which I, I'm guessing there was intentionality around. Uh, uh, mm. Like anybody can pick up this book. Um, it's not you know heavily academic. It's not like it's. It's, it's a page turner and, and very easily digestible. So thank you for that as well. Um, last question for you, David Dennis Jr. Mm-hmm. Why this book right now and what do you hope it contributes to today's struggle? Well, I mean, the book, I mean, the book right now is to me, and I, I guess the answer to both these questions is, is I want it to be a lighthouse for folks who are looking for a place with all this stuff going on. Like I didn't want to do civil rights activist wags his finger and tells black lives matter how to how to move <laughs> you know that's not what i wanted to do but what i wanted to do is write something that showed what what you know the heart of movement work and what they did and i think that's universal is that you know wherever there's wherever there are black folks in this country there are local people who are who are trying to work to get black folks free you know and you don't have to go in and take over a city, you could follow them and follow where the movement is. And you can, again, find your place. Like, I just want people to see these are real humans. These were kids. These are real folks who are just trying to live, like, you know, trying to just, trying to just be their best selves. And in the midst of that, they've, they really freed so many folks they changed this country they saved this country from itself while just trying to you know save themselves and if you read this you can feel you know you talk about the accessibility you can feel that movement work is accessible and it's just something that any that everybody can do if you just you know listen to folks who who are who are doing it and find your place just do something and that's my hope is that you can just find a place and feel confident don't feel so uh, like there's a division between who's actually doing the work and you just try it, just try it. And I think, I, I hope that this empowers folks to do that. You have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. I've been in conversation with David Dennis Jr., a freelance writer, editor, educator, social commentator, and visiting professor of journalism at Morehouse College. He, in collaboration with his father, David Dennis Sr., a civil rights veteran, one of the original Freedom Riders who rode from Montgomery to Jackson in 1961, served as field secretary for CORE, um, and helped organize Freedom Summer in 1964. They've released The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the Legacy of a Freedom Ride. David Dennis Jr., thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. 
Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. 